All right, take your Bibles out, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm just about done. I get the first four chapters, and then I think Brother Joel gets several chapters, and then Pastor, I guess, will take the rest of it and finish the book of Hebrews up. It's really interesting to see the different styles of, of preparation and preaching and things like this, and uh, I, I enjoy listening to both of these other men. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit more relaxing. I can go ahead and sit there and... and you know, poke fun and make faces, and no, I won't do that too much. Rest. We last week we hit, we started rest, uh, talking about rest in verse number eleven. Said they'll not enter into that rest. And tonight we get into this, and and several times uh, he mentions rest. Uh, and we'll get into that as, as we go through, but just try to keep that in mind that he's talking about rest. And I know that's something that all of us really need at different stages. In verse number four, it said, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Father, take your word tonight. Bless us as we study. Help us to learn something tonight. Help us to know what rest is and how we can attain that rest. Lord, just encourages, challenges, convict us where it's needed. In Jesus' name, amen. As we said before, we started out in the last chapter talking about rest, so this is basically a continuation. But tonight it's mentioned five different times just in this passage alone. You have different types of rest. And this is what makes it a little bit confusing to people if you don't understand there's different types of rest he's speaking of. There's five different kinds just in this passage. For example... That God's Sabbath rest. 
Then you have the Jewish Canaan rest. Then you have the salvation rest. Then you have the Christian's rest. Then you have eternal rest. There's so many different kinds, and when you just read through it, you, you, you see them, but it, it just kind of, I'm not sure what he's talking about here. And it's hard to kind of put it together. So hopefully as we go through this, uh, you'll be able to sort some of these things out and understand. Now understand every illustration always falls down at some point. I don't make any difference if you're trying to make a personal illustration that you have. It will not match exactly 100% the way the Bible is saying or whatever. You can make a, an illustration using football, and it has some generalities there, but it will never, it always falls down someplace. Even in the scriptures, when illustrations are made, it does not exactly show you what's going on. But if you understand he's trying to illustrate a point, then you grab a hold of that point and you don't worry about the other trivial little things because that's not the purpose of what he's talking about. Uh, you can, when you're talking about somebody, let's say the jailer, uh, and, and that John was, or, or Paul was in jail. Now, you can get really hung up on how far back they were in that cell because it said they were in the hinder part. But that's not the point he was making. And so if you focus on the illustration, it becomes a lot more clear and don't, don't worry about all the side, little side things, the nuances there. So we're going to start talking about Sabbath rest. And we do that because in, in verse number 4, uh, he's using Israel's rejection of God at the border. Remember when they were going to go into to Israel and God said, go in. And they said, no, we're not going in. And God said, all right, then you're going out in the desert and you're going to die in the desert. And they wandered around out there until all of them was dead. And then they, the rest of them come back into Israel. So he's talking about that and he's using that. He has used it in the past in verse, or chapter 3. But he's talking about the seriousness of the decisions that they were making. Remember, these people were under great persecution. They fled for their lives. They've left their homes. They left everything. And now they're wondering, should I have stayed in Judaism? Or should, is, is, what's going on here? This isn't the way I thought it was going to be, you know, when I become a Christian. I, I've got real problems now that I didn't have before. So all of this going through their mind, and he's trying to illustrate these things, getting them to understand they need to make the right choice, the right decision here. So now he uses the Sabbath to illustrate this same, this same purpose, and he uses that to illustrate salvation here. It's similar to the rest that he had when he... Uh, on the seventh day, rested from all his works. Uh, but it's not exactly the same. Now understand something. When God finished his work 
on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, at creation. God did not stop working. This is where we mess up. We think God just rested and we get the picture. Well, he went over here and he just sat down <laughs> and said it's done. When you finish a project, you might sit down for a little bit, but you keep working because there's something else to do. I mean, you, you fix the door over here and there's going to be a window over here that needs repairing too. But when you finish the door, that work is finished. So understand, God did not stop working. He's working right now. He's working tonight. He's worked throughout our lives. He's worked all through history. So when he's talking about this Sabbath rest, he simply stopped working because the creation was finished. It was done. That's why he says in verse number 4, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. He'd finished creation. Now he is perpetually resting from creation. He's still not creating. He's done. It's finished. And that's why when salvation was finished with Jesus on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Not, not every, the world wasn't finished. Not religion wasn't finished. Not all of that. It keeps going on. But the work for salvation was finished. That's all that needed to be done. Now, what he's doing here is quoting Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. On the seventh day God did end his work which he had made and rested on the Sabbath day from all his work which he had made. It's also found in Exodus chapter 10 and chapter 31. Again, they knew all of these scriptures. Many of them had, had the, the entire Pentateuch memorized. The first five books of the Old Testament. It was, they were really serious about this thing. So when he's quoting these verses, they knew exactly what he was talking about. It says rest. The word rest there is Shabbat or Sabbat. It's our word Sabbath. It means to cease, to stop, or to abstain from labor. God stopped his creative work but he continues to work in our lives and all throughout the world. We stop relying on our work for salvation and we simply put our faith and trust in what he did for us on the cross, the work that he did. We stop. Why? Because we can't do anything. It was finished on the cross. If you believe that, then you don't need to work for salvation. There's nothing you can do to please God in and of yourself. Because God was already pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's why he said it is finished. So like God, we continue to work as Christians, as believers... 
they were still to continue to work and serve God even though there was persecution. Why? Because if they placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God says they have rest. It's finished. Now, notice one thing. The author, when he quotes Psalms, and, and here he quotes Psalms nine different times here in chapter 3 and 4. That quotes from Psalm 95 many times. When he quotes from Psalms and Genesis and all of this, what does that tell us? It tells us that the writer acknowledges that Genesis or Psalms or these books that they quote is in fact the word of God. They believed it to be the word of God before ever there was a canon or anything like that. They acknowledge it was God's word and that it was true. So what he's saying, I want to take you back to the scriptures. And that's what he was doing with the Jews. He was taking them back to the word of God. No matter what you do, always take people back to the word of God. Your opinion's good, but you know, it's like noses. A lot of them smell. Everybody's got an opinion, but they're all different. God's word never changes. And that's why he's pointing them back to the word of God. Uh, he says in verse number five, and in this place again, what's he doing? He's taking them back to the word of God. He might say in this place or in that place, in this book or in that book. But what he's saying, because he's already just quoted the word of God, he says, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, Referring him back to the scripture. And he quotes at that point, Psalms 95 and verse 11. Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So he's taking them back to something they know. That's the scriptures. Makes no difference if they were Jews or now that they're Christians. The scriptures was the foundation of everything. So now let's look at lost rest. The rest of the lost, he, in verse number six, seeing therefore, again, whenever therefore, find out what it's there for. It's the context here is referring to God resting. Back in Genesis. And Israel's rejection of God's rest. So that's what he's got in mind and that's what they're thinking of. He said, it remaineth. It's important you get that word. Even though the promise of rest had not been appropriated by many, by those that were uh, Israelites, by those that were called the children of God, but were not. Those that had rejected God's rest, even though they had rejected it, he says, that rest still remains. He says, it's still here. The promise of God for rest is still good. Just because they rejected it don't mean that it doesn't still apply to the Jews here and to us in the church. That's why he said in Matthew 28, come unto me and I will, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. You see, he's still offering that even in the New Testament. 
So it doesn't depend on what other people do or not do. God says that rest is, it remaineth for you. He goes on and says that some must enter therein. He's telling them others are going to come into that rest. It's not just for Israel. It was not just a promise back there. It was a promise that continued. And he says, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. The Jews in the wilderness. God made them an offer. But they rejected it, so he rescinded the offer and said, that's it. You crossed the deadline. I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. You're going out in the wilderness and you're going to die. It's not, it's not fun to play games with God. That's why when, when people hear the word of God and they're lost, they need to be saved. That's why when somebody hears and you know they're lost, you need to pray for them. Because if that heart hardens, like he's mentioned in, chapter, or in verses 1 through 3, if that heart hardens, there's nothing they can do. So the Jews in the wilderness, God offered it to them. The offer was rescinded, but he's offering it to Christians. Now, let me, let me be, I mean, I can say some things that maybe somebody else don't say. What are they going to do? Send me back to Africa? Glory to God. You know, I, I, I'd love it. Why are perfect, professing Christians without persecution... Why are we not faithful to church? Why are we not faithful to pray? Why are we not faithful to read our Bibles and witness and tithe or serve God? He gives us the answer all the way through these four chapters. It's called unbelief. Unbelief. If you believed, and this is the illustration I used when, right before the, the insurrection in, in Africa when they come in and, and killed a lot of the people in the village the next, that next morning. I said, if, if Coney, if somebody said that Coney was coming into this, into this village, I said, what would you do? I said, if you believed it with your heart, you would immediately run as fast as you can out the other end of that village. If you really didn't believe it, you'd sit around talking about it, and that's what they did, and that's why they were dead. If we believe what we say we believe, it will be affected in our actions. It's not just up here, but it's in what we do as well. Why don't we do it? I don't believe it. Why don't, why don't I worship Allah? I don't believe it. I'm not a Muslim. Why? Because I don't believe it. Why do I witness to people? Why do I carry tracts around? Why do I do these things? Because I believe it. I believe that people without Jesus Christ are going to hell. We really don't believe it. We say we do. But they said they were children of God. They said they worshiped God. They said they believed God. They brought their animals and sacrificed them. And God turned them away. Why? Because of their un.
belief. And he's trying to get Israel, got the, 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 those Jews that have become Christians, to realize there's nothing to go back to. Either you believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, that will change your life. Unbelief. Verse 7. Again, he limiteth a certain day. The term limiteth is, is, is horizo. It's where we get our word horizon from. There is a specific point out here. It's a fixed point, or in this case, a fixed time. He says, he says it in David, today. That's the fixed time. Now, that wasn't just fixed for David back here because he said that clear back here in Deuteronomy before David was ever thought of. And he says, today, harden not your heart, as in the day of provocation. He comes up to David, and David, he says, today, David. He comes up here to the writer, and he says, today, and he, that's what he's writing here. He says, saying in David, today. You say, well, what about us? In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He said, there is a specific time. And when God holds out his grace and his mercy and says, I want you to be saved, if you reject that, you're just like Israel going into the, into the promised land. You say, I'm not going unless it's my terms. And God says, sorry about that. You made your choice, and it's too late. We used to witness a guy in the military when I was in the military ministry over in Spain, and and the guy just, I mean, he would weep and, 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 and you'd talk with him about scriptures. And I mean, he would cry and just really get, get into it. And all of a sudden we noticed from that point on, there's just no emotion whatsoever. And he said, he told us, he said, I think, I think I, I can't be saved. I, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to my heart anymore. He said, I can quote it back to you. He says, don't bother me at all. Today, he said, after so long a time, it was 500 years from Joshua to David. And now from David all the way to Paul that wrote this book. And he says, after so long a time, he said, God offers still good. The offer is accompanied by warning, yes. But the offer of, of rest is still good. It extends beyond Israel. It extends beyond David. It extends beyond the, the New Testament period there, all the way to us. And that's why two times he says it. He repeats it again. And he says, as it is said today, now, if Ye will hear his voice if you will just hear his voice. If you just listen to what he's saying. He said, harden not your hearts. 
Salernu. No, scleronu is the Greek word. It's a medical term that we get our, our term hardening of the hearts. Uh, what's it called? Arterial sclerosis? It's the same word. It's the hardening of the heart. What did he say? Harden not your heart. As in the day of provocation. Twice he says that just in this, this one passage here. He said either you will hear or you will harden. There's only two ways. There's not a either or. Either, I mean, there's not an in-between. Either you will soften your heart and yield to God, you'll hear, or you will harden. And if you'll go back to Pharaoh and just kind of watch the progression there every time, even though he could see, he would even see this is God. Even his prophets and all of those people said, this is of God. His heart had become so hard. It was too late. Verse number eight. For if, ye, if Jesus had given them rest, problem here. The term here is I-E-S-O-U-S in the Greek. It's the same word Jesus as Joshua. Joshua is the one that took them into Canaan. Joshua is the one that they... They followed across in the River Jordan. Joshua was the one that, that marched them around it, and Joshua was the one that took them to Ai, and Joshua, all of that. The term is the same. Every commentator that I have ever read agrees 100% that the term Jesus is Joshua. That's what Joshua is in the Old Testament. It's Jesus, the same word, the same name. And so Joshua, for if Joshua had given them rest, remember he's using that bringing them into to Israel there as the illustration. He said if Joshua, when he, they followed him into Israel, if he gave them rest, then he wouldn't need to talk about another rest. But Joshua didn't give them rest. That's the context, that Canaan rest. He did bring them some military victories. But if you'll remember, they didn't get a complete military victory. There were still the Canaanites and the Hittites and all of these different Skeetabites and everybody in the land there. A lot of them ites. They didn't have full victory. They didn't have complete rest like God has promised. So then he said, then would not or would he not afterward have spoken of another day? The rest that God was speaking of was not fulfilled by Joshua. If Joshua had given them complete and final rest, which he did not, God would not have spoken later on about giving them rest in another day, which he spoke of in Psalm chapter 95. This is the point beyond the rest that the Messiah was going to bring. Jesus brings complete rest. He is the greater Jesus, the greater Joshua that he would bring. So remember the context. It, he's been talking about this of salvation. We need to stop from our own good works, trying to get saved, 
trying to keep the Ten Commandments, trying to go to church, trying to get the pens, perfect attendance like we did when we was kids and all that to get, to get a little higher on the, the, the pole and hope God would weigh it out. No, that's not it. He said, you quit working for your salvation. You cease from your works. Why? Because I did it all on the cross. So this is what he's saying. So remember, he said, Jesus is better than, than the prophets. He said, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than men. Jesus was better than Moses. Jesus was better than Joshua. All the way through, he keeps showing us that Jesus is better than all of these things. His rest is better. Better than Joshua, the son of Nun, he is Jesus, the son of God. In verse number 9, he says, There remaineth therefore, Again, remember, he uses that word remaineth. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. He said, even though they rejected it before, even though it has been many years, he said, there remaineth a rest to the people of God. So because he did bring that better rest, it speaks of that day, the better rest that is available through Jesus Christ. The promise of true rest is still in effect. I know because I'd been trying everything I could. And September 21st, 1975, I got rest for my soul. I don't have to worry. And I don't. I don't worry about my soul. Why? Because I'm resting in what he did. If I was resting in what I did, I'd still be trying to work. But I can't do anything, and he did it all. Rest in him. The promise is of a true rest that is still in effect. The rest of the soul, not land, but life. They were looking for land. Jesus was talking about life here. And it's offered by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. You see the redemptive rest here. For he that is entered into his rest, those that have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, those, he said, he also has ceased from his works. If you've been saved, you don't have to work at your salvation any longer. You are, still work, you are still to work because he said, I've saved you unto good works. Now that you're saved, you're going to serve God. You're going to do what's right. You're going to follow the Spirit of the Lord because that's what our life is all about now. But as far as salvation, that is done. We can rest in that. Rest in him. They trusted in him. And they ceased, completely ceased from their own works as God did from his. It's the same thing that God did. When he was finished, he rested. When our salvation was finished, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Our salvation is finished. I'm just as much in heaven as I will be the day when God takes us home. I don't have to worry about my soul. 
And what a blessing that is. Not to have to worry about whether I'm saved or lost or up or down or in. No, no. September 21st, 1975, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to give me eternal life. And he saved my wicked soul. And I haven't worried about it since. Why? Because he is faithful. He's able to keep that which I've committed unto that day. I don't have to worry about it. In verse number 11. So he says, let us. Thirteen times in Hebrews he uses this term, let us. Why? Paul was a Jew. And he's, ta- and he's a Christian. And he's talking many times to these Jewish Christians that are struggling. And he's trying to encourage them. Memory just talked about last week about exhorting one another. That's what he's doing. Thirteen times here he exhorts them. He said, we're together in this thing. Not just out here by ourselves. So he said, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. He's not talking about salvation. That's already been settled. The rest here, and this is why when you study, it's good to get some some Greek training and a little bit of that because it really helps you understand What's going on? The term labor here is not the term work like you and I will go out and work. The term labor here is to give diligence. To give diligence. Now, giving diligence to enter into this rest. Make sure Make sure that you're saved. I mean, don't be afraid to say, God, am I saved? Go back when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Was it because you was a sinner? And you was going to hell without Jesus Christ? Or you just wanted a little help out of some financial problems? Or maybe you had a medical problem and just wanted healed? Or something like that. That's not salvation. So he says, give diligence. Make sure of this rest. He said it over and over and we just in different terms. In chapter 2 and verse number 1, he says, give the more earnest heed. In chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, hear his voice. Chapter 3 and verse 12, take heed, brethren. Chapter 4 and verse number 1, fear. Here he uses the term, give diligence, labor. It's a serious thing. We need to make sure of these things. It is the opposite of drifting. And this is what most people do in America and around the world. Remember the dead fish? Just floats down the river. They, They look like a fish. And they smell like a fish. But they're just floating down the river, dead as a mackerel, just letting the world pass them by. And that's what he said in chapter 2. He said, don't drift. Don't let that happen. Give diligence. 
make sure that these things are right. Nobody ever got saved and nobody ever matured as a Christian by being careless and lazy. You check things out. Before I ever buy anything, I always go on, on, online and I mean I check everything I can, prices and, and how the size and the shape and will it fit this or that vehicle or will it fit over here. I get the measurements, everything. And I, you know, I, I just, I, I want to be diligent. That's what he's talking about. Don't be afraid to go back to the day you got saved. I can remember exactly where I was, the man that dealt with me, the little old wicker chairs there in that little Sunday school room in Spain, and my knees was up to my chest, but my heart was just broken because I was going to hell. And James Dunn took that Bible, and he showed me how to be saved. And I received Christ as my Savior. Go back. Why did you get saved? My wife went forward at the same time I did. She had no idea why she was going. She said, I just didn't want to sit there by myself. <laughs> so she said, I followed you up. And they took her off, and they went through some stuff. She had no idea what she was doing. And it wasn't until, what, about a year and a half, maybe two years later, while I was in Bible college, that she realized, I'm not saved. I'm fooling myself. And thank God she got her settled. She got saved to the most handsome husband she's ever seen. <laughs> he goes on and he says, Lest a man fall after the same example of unbelief. That same example of unbelief. Again, he's giving that warning. Don't fall. It's the word pito. The falling into ruin or falling into that sin. Don't, don't do that, he said. It's not a loss of salvation. That's parapito. That's falling away. He's not falling away. He's simply falling into ruin. You're, you're destroying yourself. If you try to go back to the world, you're just destroying yourself. It's a warning about falling into that unbelief. Don't, don't do that. When you have a hard time, don't lay out of church. Get in church. Don't, somebody says something and, or don't shake your hand or something. Well, that just shows their ignorance. You just go ahead and start shaking everybody else's hand. If they say something wrong, don't quit church. Don't quit God. That's when you need to come closer to him. Don't let these things get you out of fellowship with the, with the Lord. Now, all of this, he comes to this point, and I've heard this verse preached, and I've heard it proclaimed and quoted, and most, most, most every time it's taken out of context. And it's, they're saying what it's not saying. He says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He's talking to these Jewish people about Israel and what they did and, and turned on God. 
wouldn't believe God. And he said, I've quoted you the scripture in Psalms. I've quoted you the scripture in Ezekiel. I've quoted you the scripture in Genesis. I've quoted you scripture over and over. So he says, the word of God. Listen to the word of God. Take heed. He says, the word of God, whether it's the paper or the person, it doesn't make any difference. Jesus is the word of God. He said, it's quick. It's alive. It's, you're, I've been saved 50 years. It just every time I get in that book, I find something new. You don't do that with Mark Twain. Good, good reading, but it, you don't do that. Why? Once you've read it, you know. But with the Word of God, it's alive. It's living. It's the very Word of God. And the Spirit of God will reveal to you as needed what you need in this. Now, it's quick, it's powerful. The word is energous. It's where we get our word energy. It means it's effectively working. The word of God is working. That's why, how do you, how do you win an atheist to Christ? You quote scripture to him. You don't try to argue with him, you quote scripture to him. Why? Because the word of God will not come back void. It will do the work the Spirit of God wants. I remember I witnessed to this guy. He was, he was kind of an atheist. I mean, he was into evolution and all this. And we sat on the front, front bench there in the church over in Spain. And, and, and I'm witnessing to him. And, and, and we're not getting very far. And I'm thinking, boy, this is just not, not doing so hot. And I'm quoting scripture after scripture. And, and he just, you know, just hard as a political opponent. <laughs> A year later, he walks in. I didn't know him, didn't, didn't remember him. I'm, I'm preaching. Had six YWAM missionaries come to get saved that day. That'll blow him away. And he comes walking down the, down the aisle. And as I, my, I meet him in the front, and I said, what did you come forward for, sir? He said, you don't remember me. And I said, no, I don't. He said, well, you, about a year ago, we were sitting on this bench over here and you was talking about evolution. I said, yes, sir, I remember. He said, for the whole year, he said, I could not get away from the scriptures you gave me, the word of God that you gave me. And he said, I got saved and I come forward to tell you that I'm now a Christian. You tell them the word of God. It's not your fancy and your ability and how good and your explanations and illustrations. You give them the word of God because it is quick. It is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. There's not a dull point on it. Piercing even. Now you show me the difference between a thought and an intent. What's the difference? Can you, can you get that sorted out? Can, can, you, can you tell me, give me a good definition of the soul and then give me a good definition of the spirit? And where do they start and where do they stop? You can't do it. Only God can do it. 
And that's why he says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. He knows where to cut the line of the joints and the marrow of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He says, you listen to the word of God. Let the word of God speak to your heart. What he say in chapter 1 and verse number 1? God who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake in time past to the prophet, by the prophets. But now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And over and over and over he says, hear, hear, hear. Otherwise you'll harden your heart. Listen to the word of God. It pierces, it penetrates. And he goes on and he says, when he talks about that thoughts and intents, is, the, is your thoughts, is your intents hardened toward God? When the word of God comes from the preaching, did it cut? Supposed to. You're not supposed to be comfortable in church. You're supposed to be convicted by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Oh, yes, you're to be encouraged and you're to be challenged and, and all of those different things. But the Word of God, he says, is like a hammer. He said the Word of God is like a sword. Why? Trying to get you to listen. Because what he has to say is going to help you. And if he can get that sin out of your life or he can get that person saved or whatever it might be, it's going to help you in the long run. Even the notions. He said, the secret of entering into the, to this rest is Jesus Christ and the Word of God. You want some rest? Get in the book. <laughs> get in the book. I love reading these comments. I'm still reading several different times I read devotions and I read several chapters and this other stuff and that, but I'm reading in that thing with you on the online thing and I'm, I'm just loving your comments because it shows me you're in the word of God and God is working in your heart and, and you're, you're hearing and that's what we're supposed to do that's where we get our rest if we allow the word to judge us and expose our hearts then we confess our sins and will not fail to rest. We'll be able to rest and trust in him. Israel rebelled at God's word and would not hear his voice. That's what it says in Psalm 95. Therefore they wandered in defeat and missed the rest for 40 years. We must listen to the word of God. The the word of God here is to show that we can't escape the eyes of God. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how much money you make, you might be the lowest on the totem pole, you might be CEO. Don't make any difference. God sees everything. That's why he said in verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight? 
any of them. Donald Trump, God sees everything in his heart, in his mind, in his life. And God sees you and me. Every one of us. Nobody's exempt. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things, everything, is naked and opened unto the eyes of him to whom or with whom we have to do. Angels and men, saints and sinners were all the objects of God's scrutiny. God sees and searches all, everything. You can't hide a thing from God. So therefore, he says, be diligent. Be diligent, labor. Fear God. The words manifest and naked and open here, it shows you just the totality of what he's, the, the whole scope of, of, of what he sees in our lives. His eyes are fixed on us with whom we have to do. So how carefully should we guard our hearts? How should we live our life? Flippantly, like the dead fish just floating down the river? Or diligently, putting effort into our study, putting effort into our Bible reading, putting effort into our soul winning, into our prayers, putting effort into our church attendance. You get a little sniffle? I really don't care if you give me a, the flu or not. If I die, I'm going to heaven. Amen. Now, I don't want you to give it to me. I'd rather not. But look, there's a whole lot of times that we can be more faithful to God. In all aspects of life, God wants the preeminence. And that's what he's telling these Jews that are under persecution. He said, get your eyes off the persecution and get your eyes back on me. Get them in the word of God so you can see who I am and what I've done for you. And I'll give you rest. It doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be things go wrong. But even in the midst of the storm, you can rest in Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, Lord, as we finish this up next week in our, what you've given me, I pray, God, that you would just help us. Help us tonight as we see these things and these truths that over and over and over, you want us to have rest. Partially, it comes through salvation. But then, Lord, as we just put our faith and trust in you for our daily lives, that you'll give us rest in all of our trials, in our tribulations, in our difficulties. And Father, going through these with you is a whole lot different than going by ourselves. Help us to rest. Rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Brother.